the demonstrators did get into the lobby of the Hilton Hotel. And the National Guard was called. We do not see National For many Guard on the left, especially the more revolutionary left, they thought this was the uh, start of a major transformation in America to the left. And then just four months later, in November, Richard Nixon wins the White House. 1968, that was a year that galvanized the left. And it was also the beginning of more than two decades of nearly unbroken Republican power in the White House. I'm Philip Martin, and this is Heat and Light. We bring you the stories you may not have heard about last century's most pivotal year, 1968. We have a pointing device called a mouse. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? On this episode, we return to the moment in time where we started this season the radical left-wing protest outside the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. But while some people were galvanized by these violent outbreaks, many Americans looked to these protests and saw only chaos and crime. So when it came time to choose a new president in November of 1968, many looked to the candidate that promised to restore what they called law and order, Richard Nixon. To help explain how the left-wing protest movement may have in fact strengthened the American right, we have Professor Donald Critchlow with us, who studies U.S. history at Arizona State University and whose personal politics followed a similar course. He was a liberal activist in the 60s who today considers himself a conservative. Donald, welcome. Well, thank you very much. I guess my first question uh, to you is what happened at the Democratic National Convention, 1968. This, of course, was a particularly chaotic and violent uh, protest. Many people would say it was uh, violent because of the police. Some people would say it was violent because of the demonstrators. Uh, No matter how you look at it, this was broadcast on television all over the country and all over the world. When the average American turned on their TV in August of 68, what did they see and how did they react, uh, in your view? Yes, well, I think uh, one journalist uh, covering the uh, convention, he wrote that it seemed that the uh, world had been turned upside down and was never going to be uh, set right side up again. The demonstrators really were expressing a a good deal of anger, that uh, deep anger they had been building up for the last year with uh, anti-war protests and then the shooting of uh, Martin Luther King. Bobby Kennedy prior to this, so the system didn't seem to be working. Many of the demonstrators went to that convention to have a violent uh, confrontation. The National Guard backed up the police to keep streets clear of demonstrators. The guards used tear gas, but the police used nightsticks. For many on the left, especially the more revolutionary left, They thought this was the uh, start of a major transformation in America to the left. And I think they were very surprised when uh, polls came out uh, after the uh, convention showing that most uh, people in the country supported the police. What are we coming to as a country if policemen are treated the way they have been treated, not only in Chicago, but all over the country? And then just four months later, 
In November, Richard Nixon wins the White House. It was a close election, but Richard Nixon uh, won, as he described it, by the silent majority. And that really uh, shocked the left. And then with the ending of the the draft, there was going to be um, a decline, actually, in uh, on the left and a kind of a demoralization that was going to have a, a, a brief revival during the Cambodian invasion. But it really was a turning point in America, not in the way that most uh, many uh, academic historians have described it, as great period in, in which there was resistance, but actually it was a turning point in, in American history, political history, because there was going to be a, a conservative ascendancy. Sure, but you could see how the um, uh, the left they thought things were heading in a different direction. This was just a few years out uh, after Goldwater's defeat, a, uh, which marked an extraordinary. Um, many people felt a retrenchment of conservatism. How did Goldwater's uh, uh, loss affect uh, what was happening in 1968 and what, um, and what you're describing now? It was a major defeat for uh, the conservative movement when Goldwater lost in 1964 in a, in a landslide. To President Lyndon Johnson in Johnson City, Texas, congratulations on your victory. I will help you in any way that I can toward achieving a growing and better America and a secure and dignified peace. The role of the Republican Party will remain in that temper, but it also remains the party of opposition when opposition is called for. And uh, with him, uh, many Republicans uh, went down on the uh, national, state, and local levels. Goldwater's loss really set the stage for Richard Nixon who had uh, carefully calculated appeasing the uh, Goldwater uh, supporters as well as at the same time not alienating the more moderate, liberal, uh, so-called Rockefeller uh, supporters. So it set the stage for uh, Richard Nixon. And then the, uh, the demonstrations, uh, uh, campus upheavals, basically enabled Richard Nixon to, to win the presidency in 1968. There was a good deal of irony in all of, in all of this that was happening in, uh, in politics at this time. Well, part of the surprise, I, you have to assume, is that polling, uh, was, uh, polling wasn't bad, but it was still in its incipient stage uh, compared to what we have today. And I have to, you have to assume that that is part of the reason why many on the left were surprised, as you say. If you look at polling around the long order issue uh, during this period, uh, it's really quite uh, surprising in that most Americans, white and black, believe that there should be law and order. They were strong on this, uh, this issue and, and calling for order. So Nixon was able to uh, capture that. And I don't think the left uh, understood the, the underlying uh, resentment that was, uh, that was growing in the American uh, public about, about the breakdown of what they saw as law and order, not only you know, uh, racial riots in the city, but campus disturbances, but also the uh, Chicago uh, Convention in 1968. What kind of issues was the Nixon campaign addressing earlier in 1968, uh, before the um, the Democratic National Convention, for example? How did how did Nixon's issues change after the protest movement uh, gathered steam and attention uh, that year? That was that's a great question. Um, 
What Richard Nixon campaign uh, set out to do was to craft a new Richard Nixon. You know, this was the new Richard Nixon, the more affable, less uh, attack uh, kind of dog. And so uh, they basically avoided issues. He made these uh, uh, kind of uh, pretty innocuous observations about, you know, didn't go after the protesters much. He, he was trying to run a pretty non-issue oriented campaign. Patrick Buchanan was on that campaign, he, uh, and he kept saying to Nixon, look, at, you need to get some issues, put some meat in this campaign, and Richard Nixon didn't want to. But suddenly in September, uh, Humphrey, who finally had broken with Johnson's war, began to move forward in the polls. And at that point, Richard Nixon is convinced by Buchanan that they need to go on the attack, and the attack Humphrey on the law and order issue. On civil rights. Uh, as far as this problem of law and order is concerned, I am for law and order. Hubert Humphrey is for law and order. George Wallace is for law and order. How we would do it would be quite different. And as far as my program is concerned, I am the only one of the candidates who has laid out a precise program for stopping the rise in crime and for reestablishing freedom from fear. That's the difference between... And it seemed to have worked. It was close. It was a very, very close election. Probably if the left hadn't been so divided in the beginning, Humphrey might have won that election. Although if you look at the stakes anyway, it turned out in the popular vote to be pretty close. Well, this term came up later, uh, which would be, it was sort of popularized, it seems, in 1972 in the second election. But it still was uh, resonating uh, uh, in, in the uh, political landscape, the notion of the silent majority. Who was the silent majority? Uh, who were the demographics that made up this silent majority? Yeah, well, you've, uh, you've asked kind of a, a, a complicated uh, question. I hope so. Uh, I think, yeah, <laughs> and I'm sure you can answer uh, it. That needs to be broken down, and right. I'll try to do it uh, briefly. I think the uh, silent majority were primarily uh, blue-collar uh, workers, primarily uh, kind of in industrial, suburban uh, types. They would be uh, they would be the ones that the appeal to law and order would would attract. I think the sign of uh, you know that the silent majority could be tapped was really first evidence in, in, in 1966 with uh, Ronald Reagan when he successfully beat Pat Brown, uh, basically attacking uh, campus disorders, that is, Reagan did. He ran as a citizen. He, re- he ran as representing the average Californian. Uh, he wasn't a politico. Biggest shot in the arm for the American Republican Party, the election of Ronald Reagan as governor of California. By a colossal million majority, the one-time film actor is already spoken of as a presidential candidate next time. The The Republicans were going to begin to make uh, gains in the South, primarily in uh, in the suburbs. They were not attracting that rural vote. That was a Democratic vote. And that was apparent in... uh, you know, it would uh, jump ahead, but when Carter wins in 76, he wins all of the districts that uh, the George Wallace had won. 
And similarly, even in 1980, when Reagan swept the South, Carter still won 51% of the districts that, uh, that Wallace had won. The Republicans were going to build in the, uh, the suburban areas, primarily around low taxes, family values, President, strong military. That was the appeal. Place your left hand on the Bible and raise your right hand. And please repeat after me. I, Richard, I, Richard Nixon. I, Gerald R. Ford. I, Ronald Reagan. I, George Herbert Walker Bush, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of president, the office of president, the office of president of the United States. So help me God. And so what were the ongoing effects of, of this polarization of, of 1968 on American politics? I mean, you've pointed out uh, very uh, articulately how uh, this led to uh, years of um, entrenched uh, uh, Republican uh, Party politics. But how did, how did it shape the modern Republican and Democratic parties? The Republican Party is going to become uh, a conservative party. Uh, moderates are, uh, it's going to take some time, uh, but basically the party is going to be conservative. If you're running as a Republican, you, you, you basically run as a conservative these days. For the Democratic Party, it's going to uh, take some time. Uh, they, on the presidential level, they, want, they tend to run uh, centrist. Democrats, Republicans, and independents, loud and clear. As represented by Carter and uh, Clinton. Join together and get the job done for America's future. On the state and local level, it's moving to the left, and that's represented in Congress. I think that's the wrong question, because the question is, who are the Democrats? Are there some who have the guts to take on the billionaire class? Yeah, most don't. So it's not that they 74, uh, the Watergate babies come in, and they're primarily on the left. So you see the party, the Democratic Party, beginning to move to the left, but it's not a completely uh, progressive uh, party. And, I, and, I, and that's kind of the fight that's going on now, uh, just how progressive it's going to be. Uh, so, so, Professor, let me ask you, one of the most interesting aspects of 68, in my view, is your own background. Uh, I understand you were a leader in, um, in SDS and, um, uh, and a left-wing activist. Um, now, I can't say I'm entirely surprised that you today are conservative because this has happened to um, a number of, of conservatives. But can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you participated in the protest movement and why? Yeah, well, I, was, uh, I grew up in Phoenix on uh, the West Side, which is today uh, heavily uh, Hispanic. Um, and I was very concerned about issues of poverty. Quite frankly, I grew up in a single-parent home, not wealthy, and... Um, so I, I, I drifted to, uh, to socialism, uh, considered myself a democratic uh, socialist by the time I left high school. I was, I was only one in Arizona, I think, quite frankly. And then when I got to ASU, I was, uh, for some reason, uh, I guess I was well-liked uh, or disliked, uh, whatever, and I was elected president of SDS. I was primarily concerned about poverty. Uh, we launched a community um, action program. 
uh, but increasingly as the, this was in 66, and increasingly as the war escalated, uh, we became more involved in the, uh, in the war. In terms uh, of opposing the war, you, you mean? Yeah, in opposing the war, of course. And I wasn't, uh, I didn't stay in the uh, radical movement very, very long. I was primarily uh, interested in, in going to graduate school and, and uh, becoming a professor. And I went to uh, San Francisco State. You, you went to a hotbed of, 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 of liberal politics and progressive yeah, politics. That's right, yeah. I know it must disappoint some of my professors what's happened to me, but, the, uh, but then I went to uh, Berkeley. Afterwards, uh, most of my career was spent in the, um, in the Midwest. So what uh, changed? I think there, were, there wasn't any single moment, uh, an epiphany on the road to Damascus where I suddenly saw the light, that is, and became uh, identified as a conservative, which I think is much more uh, complex than many of my academic uh, friends want to make out. You know, when we look at 1968 and we compare it, for example, to 2018, of course we're talking about two eras, but with such intense political polarization. Please don't be too nice. Like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting their head, I said, you can take the hand away, okay? Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that I mean, wall. then and now, a lot of people fear the country, you know, might tear itself apart. What, what lessons for you are there for us to learn from 1968 in 2018? Yes, I think the, uh, the major lesson is that everybody needs to take a deep uh, breath here. We'll, uh, we'll get through this. Uh, we've had worse episodes of political polarization. After all, we did have a civil war. What happens is in American politics, uh, periodically, you get uh, grassroots activism on the left and the right, challenging uh, party uh, establishments. People feel that uh, major issues aren't being addressed. And then eventually the parties undertake uh, reform. Then you have an adjustment. And at that point, parties begin to focus on getting things done, and candidates emerge that want to uh, solve uh, problems. Right now, we're going through this period of, of challenges to the uh, political establishment on both the left and the right. Donors before your community. To my Republican colleagues, if you vote no, you're legitimizing the most despicable thing I have seen in my time in politics. You want this seat? I hope you never get it. But it seems that most of that challenge is occurring, at least uh, in terms of those in power on, on the right. And, and what I've heard, Donald, is that uh, while you may be a conservative, many people seem to view what's happening in the, um, in the, in, in the White House right now, for example, as something that's even uh, that's something further right than conservatism. Uh, some have described it as sort of a reactionary moment. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I think, I think the uh, category of conservative uh, 
the conservative ascendancy have broken down. I think that uh, what we're going through is part of the challenge to the Republican establishment is, is not about conservatism. So I don't think uh, Trump is uh, conservative. I don't think he's necessarily uh, a reactionary uh, either. He's, uh, he's pretty non-ideological, if you want to put him on an ideological spectrum. But I think, getting back to 1968, you asked me what the lessons are with today, and that my first observation is that we'll get through this, we'll be okay, uh, it's hard to uh, not get emotional whatever side of this spectrum you are or wherever you are because of this, this kind of uh, anger that's being expressed on, on all sides. I also do think that there should be a warning to uh, the extremes on both the left and the right. Ultimately, uh, American voters don't like disorder, they don't like extremism, and there could be, there'll be a reaction either against the left or the right, uh, uh, right-wing uh, or left-wing extremism. And that's exactly what happened in 1968. That was the lesson of 1968 that the left should have learned, that they really helped create a decade of Richard Nixon and then leading up to uh, Ronald Reagan in 1980. So that's the lesson. Be careful. Donald, this has been fascinating. Thank you very much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Hey, thanks for listening to Heat and Light. I hope you've enjoyed these conversations about 1968. It's a year that still resonates 50 years later. I know I learned a lot. This episode marks the end of our first season. My team and I would love to hear from you. We'd love to know what you thought. Leave us a review on Apple Podcast or tweet us at HeatLightPod. And I want to remind you once again to share your own 1968 story with us. Did you take part in the student rally? Maybe your parents or grandparents worked in the early days of Silicon Valley. Give us a call at 617-329-5248 and leave us your name, phone number, and your personal story about that pivotal year, 1968. That number again is 617-329-5248. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Heat and Light is a production of The Conversation U.S. Learn more about us at heatlightpod.com or check the show notes. Our show is produced and engineered by Maria Muriel. Our associate producer is Jonathan Gang. And our executive producer is Maria Belinska. Our theme music is by Kenny Kusiak. I'm Philip Martin. Until next time, take care. <laughs>